we know you can't get enough of your favorite flavors. Luckily, Kroger Free Pickup makes it easy to grab what you need without any surprise fees. Whether it's extra buns for the barbecue or those chips you just can't quit, start your cart with the Kroger app. Kroger, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply, subject to availability. It's the big $10 sale, so mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. Normally at this point in the program, I rant about something and there is so much going wrong in the world today, I wouldn't know where to begin. And I always try to keep the program apolitical. So that kind of limits where we're going. So I guess we'll uh, just jump into this thing today. I'm joined by Dr. James Horan. He's a received his PhD in medicine with a psychology focus from Adeline University in 2004. He is currently Director of Research at Integrated Knowledge Systems Incorporated and is a research professor in the Laboratory for Statistics and Computation. Well, it's the Institute, the Political Institute of somewhere. <laughs> you can fill me in on that later here. I can't uh, make <laughs> the foreign words. Uh, he has published over 100 peer-reviewed research papers in both mainstream psychology and a variety of anomalous arenas, as well as currently serves as the editorial on the editorial boards of several journals. As of January 2022, he was appointed the new editor-in-chief of the peer-reviewed Journal of Scientific Exploration. Jim will talk about his UFO-related research, including his controversial work on the Ramey memo uh, controversy with a uh, broader Roswell incident, within the broader Roswell, Roswell incident in <laughs> 1947. Maybe we should start again. I don't know here. Uh, Jim, welcome to the program. Kevin, good to connect. It's been quite a while. Yes, it has. Hey, what's this uh, this this uh, thing that I couldn't pronounce? The Institute of... Look, all you need to know, it's called ISLA. It's a Portuguese university um, where I am a professor at. But the most important thing is I've been given the opportunity to be an editor of a science journal that's devoted to all range of anomalies across science. And so ufology is certainly part of that, but it's a wonderful way to get a really great lay of the land because a lot of these anomalies that normal, normally we think are of being disconnected, they actually relate to one another. So, Well, here's a question I think that many of the audience may have. What exactly is a peer-reviewed scientific journal? I don't think they would have had an opportunity to come in contact with many of those. Well, it's overstated for one thing. If it's a scientific journal, it should by definition be peer-reviewed. What that means is we're not just publishing people's unchecked opinions and speculations, rather ideas, whether they're just conceptual or whether they're actually tested through different research designs. They are independently evaluated by experts in the field. 
And then the papers usually go through a set of revisions to clarify issues, maybe catch errors. So what is finally published in that journal uh, has passed muster. That doesn't always mean that everyone still agrees with the findings, but it does mean it went through quality control because science at the end of the day is not about opinion. It's about, you know, or driving consensus. Uh, it's about trying to continually push the limits of knowledge. So just when you think you know, there's always some new room to grow. And peer review helps keep us current and it helps make sure that different points of view are taken into account. Well, I would think that uh, you've got a panel of people to review the, the work and maybe there's five people on the panel and three of them say yes and two of them say no, then they, it passes muster and is published? Well, something like that. You know, again, um, not every research design is going to appease uh, every possible reader. Um, that's why skeptics, advocates, they need to be talking to each other and cooperating rather than talking at each other. Uh, but, but no, uh, studies, science is self-correcting. So if there's an issue, if there can be an improvement made, if there was an error that was uh, inadvertently uh, occurring, well, that can get corrected in new research. So Science is not stagnant. It's always changing and evolving. We're always building on what we think we know and how we know it. Science isn't based on consensus then? No, it isn't. In fact, some of the most important research findings actually went against the grain at the time. Um, but there certainly is with peer review consensus that a particular piece of research or conceptual thinking has merit. So in that sense, you can say science involves a merit system that involves socialization and consensus. But at the end of the day, ideas are either objectively right or they're objectively wrong. And part of the peer review process is try to limit the mistakes made. That's what all science is. We know we're wrong on everything. It's the question of can we keep reducing the error rate so our approximation of reality is closer and closer every year. Well, I think back to the Ramey memo, and this, of course, for the, the audience who may not know, is a document held by General Ramey in 1947 that relates to the Roswell UFO crash in some fashion. I think the few words that can be read with a, micro, a microphone, with a mic, microscope or a um, magnifying glass suggest it's related to Roswell, given the timing of the photograph and that sort of thing. I think that pretty much is a consensus opinion where we run into trouble is exactly what it says and some of the parts that are a little bit harder to read. Now, you had some experience with the Ramey memo? Yeah, and it's actually, it stemmed from my broader interest in the Roswell incident. I mean, uh, at heart, I'm a skeptic. That doesn't mean that I'm a debunker, but I'm a sympathetic skeptic. I need to see evidence for whatever claims someone is making, whether it's pro or con towards the paranormal or the anomalous. But there was something about the Roswell incident that always fascinated me because nothing about that case made sense to me, regardless of what the explanation was. If it was merely a weather balloon or a special weather balloon, the way that it was handled doesn't make sense. If it was a crashed extraterrestrial craft, the way it was handled doesn't make sense to me. And if it was a cover-up of an ex extraterrestrial crash crashing into a craft crashing into a weather balloon, it still didn't make sense. Nothing about this case, based on all the information that I've seen and really assessed, makes sense. And so that really intrigued me. It also was a case that was basically involved trace evidence. Now, a lot of UFO sightings, of course, they're eyewitness testimony. 
But with some UFO cases, there's actually trace evidence. Of course, Roswell involved a whole lot of trace evidence that was then confiscated by the military. So we don't have that. But there's other forms of trace evidence in the Roswell case, one of them being the Ramey memo, which of course, as you said, was a photograph during a staged press release, a staged press event that was aimed to sort of put to bed the idea that what crashed in Roswell in 1947 was an extraterrestrial technology. And what, what that photograph showed was, you know, here's General Ramey um, kneeling down, obvious debris of a weather balloon, but he's holding a piece of paper. And he just happens to be situated such that the paper is tilted towards the camera. And you can clearly see that there is writing or what looks like typed writing on this document. Now, of course, the, the controversy comes into play is, well, what's written on that document? And that has become almost uh, a topic of religious fervor. You have people that are passionately saying that it's like, look, there's nothing there, or at least nothing you can read. There's clearly writing. He's holding a paper of something, but you trying to find exactly what it's saying is like looking at faces in clouds. You can see what you wanna see. Then on the other hand, you have people that say, oh, no, no, no. We have blown up the images. We have computer enhanced them. We have really done a lot of computer analysis and in-depth scrutiny. And we can tell you actually what a lot of the letters are and what letters are being formed into words and phrases. And some people adamantly claim that what that memo represents is a smoking gun, that it basically talks about a crash saucer with dead bodies, and it's referring to alien technology. Now there's a, you know, a huge gap, you know, uh, between those two camps. And I tried to bridge those two camps with science. To me, um, as a psychologist, I've always studied the way that people interpret ambiguous information. Well, let me, let me things that they see let me interrupt you. Let me interrupt oh. you here, because I do have a question. I think everybody agrees that something fell at Roswell. Is that correct? Oh, it's not, it's not that everyone agrees. It, it Something did. The military admits it. Even further military explanations admit something crashed. It's a question of what crashed. Okay, so we're, we've moved beyond the idea, well, maybe it was it, it, nothing happened there. It's just a complete and total myth on the parts of some people who want to believe in extraterrestrial visitation, but we know something crashed. So now we're working on the interpretation, what exactly crashed there? And that's where we get into the problems. Now with General Ramey, and we have to make this clear, I think that the, when you're looking at question documents, and that's clearly what we have in Ramey's hand is a question document, we rarely have the kind of provenance that we have for that document. Clearly it's General Ramey holding it because it's a picture of him holding it. We have the transmissional time. Uh, a photographer named J. Bond Johnson photographed it on July 8th, 1947, and transmitted over the newswire, the INS newswire at 11.59 p.m. on July 8th. Clearly we have the provenance. We know the date it was taken. We know who took the picture. We know who's in the picture. We're now looking at a very small portion of that picture. Now you mentioned, um, before I diverted the conversation here, you mentioned that um, it's the interpretation of what's on that, that memo. I think we can all agree that some of those words can be read because if you have an eight by 10, a blow up of that area with a magnifying glass, you can actually read words. I think Fort Worth, Texas and weather balloons are two of the words that stand out on the way yes. that it was held. 
And, and regardless of whatever context you give people, um, you know, we did a study, you and I together, that was published uh, in the Journal of Scientific Exploration. So it was peer reviewed, where we had three groups of participants, research participants. One group was told that this related to the Roswell incident, meaning that some people thought it was a crashed UFO, alien technology, and that this was a secret document related to the details of that crash. Then we asked them to try to decipher what is on that secret document. We had another group where we told them this is also a secret document that related to the testing of the atomic bomb, World War II. And we wanted them to see if they could decipher what it said. The third group, we told them it was just an old document. We were trying to understand what was on it, but we gave them no further context. And across all three groups, everyone was able to see the words, or most people in those groups, but Fort Worth with uh, Fort Worth, Texas, with Texas being the acronym, the abbreviation there, uh, balloons, and sometimes people saw the word weather in front of balloons. And um, what was the last one? Uh, weather balloon and story, the word story, which was very interesting. And in some of the other uh, groups, you also saw a good amount of people saw the word land, L-A-N-D. So whatever that document was, I think we can all agree, yes, it related to Roswell. It was part of whatever that staged press event was with General Ramey. Um, but I don't see any evidence from all the research I've done to date that says, yes, we found the smoking gun. There is military teletype that refers to crashed alien technology. At best, we know that something landed related to balloons. They had weather, perhaps. Something landed. Uh, it was Fort Worth, Texas. Um, but nothing that's clearly a smoking gun. That's what we found. One of the things that I was involved with just a couple of years ago was another attempt to read the memo. And they used uh, equipment that would take it down basically to scan the, the, the negative down to the microscopic level and then rebuild the whole thing, eliminating the noise that is collected on the negative. And the noise being the dirt and the fingerprints and all of that thing from the 70 years of its, of its existence. Uh, but they were unable to, to divine anything new from, from that sort of activity. But I think that um, one of the things that comes out of all of that is we've reached a point with the memo that technology isn't going to be able to resolve the rest of the, the messaging. I don't believe so, not at all. The only thing that could possibly resolve it is if we happen to find in the historical record, a copy of that very memo that Ramey was holding, then we can absolutely know for certain what's on the paper. Well, when people forget, after we publish our study, you know, I, I was crucified. And I guess to an extent, so were you, right? Where there were camps of people that were very much in favor of this being the smoking gun for the Roswell incident. And they tried to tear apart all of our methodology and the statistics. And it was, again, almost like a religious fervor, the reaction to the results. But they well, didn't me, see the larger picture. And there were two parts. Well, I'm, I'm, One I, have interrupt. I have to interrupt here because I'm, I'm running up against my break. So <laughs> I'll have Absolutely. to stop. And there's, there's some to be questions. continued. 
there's some questions that I need to ask you about that. I think there's some things that we can clarify that. I'm talking to uh, Jim Haran. We're talking about the Journal of Scientific Exploration, which he is now the editor-in-chief of, which is an important document. You should take a look at that if you get a chance. I'll have more about this on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And we'll be back right after this. So please stick around. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. And welcome back. I am here with Jim Haran. We're talking about uh, oh, the Ramey memo, actually. And we are practicing social distancing. As you can see, we're not in the same environment. We're not wearing masks, but we don't need to because there's nobody else around us. When we went away, we were talking about the Ramey memo, and I wanted to um, point out one thing, I, I, which I didn't get a chance to when we did the, the last scan of the memo. One of the things they did is they had managed to find samples of the teletype fonts that were in use at the time and see if they could determine what kind of a teletype was, was being used. And I don't believe they were able to limit it to any specific one, it just interesting font. The other thing that is kind of relevant to this, which doesn't get a lot of play, and I know you know this, Jim, uh, J. Bon Johnson, who was the photographer at the press conference, he took the picture with Ramey Holmeting the memo. Um, he said at one point that he had brought the, the document into the office and handed it to Ramey as a prop so Ramey would have something in his hand. And that, of course, would negate the importance of the document because it would mean it came over the newswire as opposed to something out of a classified message center. He, of course, later repudiated that when he realized he'd wrecked the importance of the photograph. Uh, but we weren't able to determine a source. But you were talking about uh, if we could find the original document, which I'm sure no longer exists, given the uh, longevity of messages. I know uh, as an intelligence officer, we would get 30 or 40 classified messages a day and we would destroy most of them because A, they weren't relevant to our operation and B, they usually had a use by data, a date in which the information became perishable and unimportant. So we would destroy the documents that way. So the, the odds of us finding the thing are relatively small. But one of the things that was interesting, um, you had mentioned the experimentation that had been done and that people in the various groups uh, tried to determine what was on the document and, and it was sort of primed by the 
information they were provided. In other words, it was a Roswell document. It was a, but, but atomic testing, it, you have no information. What did you see? Uh, what were the conclusions that came out of that? Well, there were a few conclusions. Um, there's some high level things and some nuances that are very important. The high level conclusion is that the memo is readable to some extent. Again, regardless of context, there were certain words, story, balloons, Fort Worth, Texas, that everyone said that they saw, or most people in most of those three conditions saw. I see it myself when I look at a nice blow up of that, of that memo. Um, so it's not as if it's completely looking at faces and clouds. Clearly, this was a written document. I think also the fact that those three words, I don't think this was just some random piece of paper that somebody just handed to General Ramey as a prop. You don't need props when you have the ultimate prop, which is supposedly this weather balloon debris. That was the star of the show. That's why they were there. So you only need one prop, and that was the one to show. So I do think that document did relate to Roswell or I should say specifically to the staged event. My personal opinion, I have no data on this, is that it was some sort of a, a memo that listed talking points um, to help General Ramey stay on, on point or what have you. So I do think it did relate to that day. But there were also some interesting findings. We also measured in the different conditions people's level of tolerance of ambiguity. In other words, are these the kind of people that need to find answers to problems or are they okay with uncertainty? We also measure their level of belief, their level of exposure to the Roswell incident. And when you looked at motivating factors like that, the higher people scored on things like the need to have an explanation, the more exposure and information they had on Roswell, um, the more words they claim to be able to see. So clearly psychology impacted what they were seeing. Uh, the more time that people spent trying to decipher the memo correlated with the more context you gave them. So the pro UFO group, they were all in. They squeezed every ounce of the time that they had. The people with atomic bomb testing, second most time spent trying to decipher that memo. The control condition, people skimmed it. They gave their obvious, what seemed to be the, the, the terms, the words, the letters that jumped out at them, but they spent the least amount of time trying to decipher it. So you cannot negate, even if you don't like the findings, I'm sorry, you can't negate the role of psychology in this. And in fact, there has been some sort of independent corroboration of this. There was a study published in the last you know, three years or so in, in a mainstream journal people can find online, uh, where basically the same research design of different control groups given different instructions trying to read and interpret text, except instead of the text being on a memo, it happened to be writing on the Shroud of Turin. There is some computer analysis that suggests there is Latin text actually imbued in the Shroud of Turin. The question is, what does it say? And so without citing us, without even knowing about our study, that research team on a completely different issue, at least conceptually, um, went about the same general procedure and they tended to find the same things. Sure, people can see images and patterns and letters, but depending on your context depends or dictates what you tend to see. So we know psychology does influence the way that people see and believe in the Ramey memo. What's interesting is my PhD dissertation was on how belief structure influenced the identification of ambiguous stimuli. And I had a series of photographs that were taken of various objects, but they weren't 
Uh, one of them was Comet West, which had broken up into four parts. So you have four blobs of light traveling together. And one of them was a meteor fall and things like that. I mean, the ambiguous stimuli. And what I found in my research was that the belief structure influenced where you took the interpretation. If you believed in alien spacecraft, then your interpretation was, here's a formation of four objects traveling together under intelligent control. If you were very religious, you might see that as some kind of a ghostly image. It was a ghost that was seen there. So the belief structure influenced it, your, your uh, identification of the ambiguous stimuli as well. I think we, you know, that's what all this research has proven to us, that it is related to uh, where you are in in your life is how you identify this. Uh, one of the things I wanted to, one of the criticisms was that the UFO researchers who had studied the Ramey memo claimed, well, I spent weeks and weeks and weeks trying to interpret this thing. And in the, our study, uh, the subjects spent 10, 15, 20 minutes. And I think you kind of alluded to that, that the one, the, the control group spent the least amount of time in, in what, 15 or 20 minutes. And I think the, the, the Roswell group spent the most time trying to, trying to puzzle this thing out, but it still was under an hour for all the people looking at the memo. Yes. Well, first the memo is not that long. So if you're spending days and weeks and years looking at this, I would say you're straining your eyes to find evidence for something that you already believe. Either there are patterns that look like letters and you can clearly tell what those letters are, and those letters either do or don't form certain words. To me, it's like filling out a crossword puzzle, okay? It's like, it should be very, very obvious. And if you have to keep straining or using new groups, new technologies to try to see, wow, is that the letter E or is it the letter F? I would say that you're only proving the point that it's ambiguous stimuli. You don't know. And all you're doing is straining your eyes, sometimes literally, sometimes metaphorically, to try to find meaning in chaos. Now, what people don't realize from that original study that we published was we said, hey, there might be independent analysis or new technologies that might be able to detect patterns in a way that the human eye can't and that there needs to be further research. We certainly didn't debunk the memo. That certainly wasn't our intention. And most people don't even realize there was a follow-up study that was published. Um, I didn't do the study, but I facilitated it thanks to the, a grant from the Fund for UFO Research. And it was published as a monograph in 2004, 2005. And it was called A Search for Meaning in the Ramey Memo. And I actually sent out, ne not negatives, but the scans of the, the memo to three independent laboratories around the world, including one of the laboratories that did analyze the Shroud of Turin that found the Latin writing on the cloth. And um, I, again, didn't tell them too much about what the controversy was. Now, if they did their own research, or if they happen to recognize it, I couldn't control for that. But just getting any lab to take time to pro bono, look at those scans and try to give me an assessment of what does it say, I thought was a win. And I had three independent laboratories do the analysis. Each used their own computer enhancement techniques. I didn't dictate anything to them. I only gave them the material and asked for them a simple question. What, if anything, does this say? And all three labs said the exact same thing, although they use different words. And that is, you can't read it. That the noise to signal ratio, the resolution of the image is such that, yes, you can tell there are certain letters. You can tell that there's writing. But to try to distinguish um, specific words in a reliable way that they would attest to in court, no. 
let alone strings of words and claims that have to do with alien technology? No. So it wasn't just our study. We had three independent labs use their own state-of-the-art technology to try to enhance and interpret the memo. And they all came to the same conclusion. Interesting, but not conclusive. Well, the key phrase, I think, in the memo, the one that most UFO researchers are hung up on, the one that, that is really the smoking gun is, uh, I think the first line, it says something to the effect of, of um, victims of the wreck. If that phrase is actually there, that eliminates, of course, the weather balloon because there's not going to be any victims of a weather balloon crash. That's the key phrase. And I know that David Rudiak, who's done a lot of research on mm -hmm. this, uh, was to the point where he was counting the specific letters in the words and that. And he says, well, there's only so many words in the English language that have the right amount of letters that start with a, the letter V, V being the critical letter in that whole string, victims of the wreck. I was involved in a study with Josh Gates of um, Exploration Unknown and all those kind of programs. I, I went to, I went to uh, Texas just to meet Josh Gates. But while we were there, they, of course, had the memo analyzed once again by somebody who's an expert in this. He said the word isn't victims, it's viewing the wreck. And I thought, well, there's an interesting interpretation because it fits the criterion that David Rudiak set, set up, but it changes the whole meaning of the memo, because if, you view, if you're viewing something, you've not, you no longer have the smoking gun. I found that kind of interesting. What well, is interesting, it's also interesting that none of the participants, none in our original study saw the word victims or even wreck. And again, none of the three laboratories using at the time, around 2004, 2005, the state of the art technology available to them came to that conclusion. They didn't see those words. So, it would be interesting if, if there could be some computer impartial analysis done that could confirm that, yes, that's what those words say. But even if it did say that, it doesn't really further clarify the Roswell incident um, at all. Well, what I was thinking, though, um, when I look at the memo and that line specifically blown up horrendously, I can see it both ways. I can see viewing. I can see victims of the wreck. And that tells me it's an ambiguous stimuli because I can see it either way where my mind it. is going. Um, but in the latest study, as I said, they took it down to the molecular level and then rebuilt the scan. I mean, it took them an hour to scan the, the negative and they did it a, just a little bit at a time as the camera moved by computer control over the whole thing. taking And then they rebuilt it from there, eliminating the noise. And when we were done with that, the words seemed to be remains of the wreck. Well, not necessarily, but the, the viewing became remains. It looked more like remains than anything else. Uh, so there's another interpretation. Well, and actually that's two interpretations. Remains could mean dead bodies and remains could mean debris. Uh, and, and who knows what else it could have meant. And even if you know what the word is, that, you, that word happens in a context of, of other words. So unless we have the full memo, it would be easy to cherry pick a particular meaning of a word also. So to me, I'm all for let's keep doing studies. Let's gather the information that we can, the empirical information that we can, uh, because I do believe Roswell was something other than a weather balloon or a special weather balloon. The uh, conclusion of this final study, and these guys took it to the point where there was nothing more to do. I don't think you're ever going to have equipment that's going to make a, a better scan of the negative. 
which is probably deteriorating somewhat too, even though it's in a controlled environment. But they said that the, the only way it's ever going to be interpreted is using artificial intelligence, some breakthrough in artificial intelligence that can apply, as you said, this unbiased uh, examination of the memo. We're going to have to break off here because we're going to have to take a break. Um, I'm here with Jim Haran. We're talking about uh, the Journal of Scientific Exploration and the uh, Ramey Memo. And we'll get back uh, right after this with some additional information. So please stick around. Text and privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids' nightly reading for school. We love it, and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid, who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year, can now read read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word KID to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text KID to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word KID to 323232. Text KID to 323232. I am back. I am joined by Jim Haran. We're talking about UFOs. We're talking about the Journal for Scientific Exploration. We were talking specifically about the, the Roswell case. You mentioned that the Roswell case kind of intrigued you as opposed to just trying to read the memo, but other aspects of the case that intrigued you as well. What were those aspects? Well, as I said, you know, Roswell is one of those things where everyone knows there was a historical event. Something crashed. Uh, the government has acknowledged that. Then they've tried to re-explain what that crash material was ever since, but there is no doubt that something of significance crashed in 1947 outside of Roswell. Um, but the way that the whole thing was handled from the debris pickup to the way it was communicated at the different points in time, um, the way that it's been handled ever since, nothing about this case made sense to me. It, it screamed of, somebody scrambling to try to find a narrative that would stick. And one of the early forms of trace evidence in this case was when I was at the Roswell UFO Museum and Research Center in Roswell. Um, there was at the time a deathbed confession that was being promoted in a monograph along with the video uh, called the Jim Ragsdale story, where there's this old guy and he claims he was out with a girlfriend in a back, you know, in a pickup truck in the middle of nowhere. Um, having some fun. And then he watches as this craft crashes into the desert. He claims to have seen it. He also claims that he saw dead bodies of aliens. Um, and he signs this deathbed confession. And again, this was another piece of evidence that was cited as the smoking gun. And at the time, I just was looking at that like, oh my goodness, here's an actual written out affidavit with a lot of details. Um, of this supposed event that would actually be case closed. It was an alien craft. And I remembered at the time, just being, again, a psychologist, I read a lot of journals, I keep track of a lot of different experts in different fields with different approaches. There was a, a colleague of mine in Canada named Stephen Porter, who was doing a lot of research on something called statement validity analysis, or SVA. And he had claimed that it's a technique that you can analyze language using different linguistic structural analysis 
And you can basically determine with a certain level of probability whether that narrative reflects someone's um, authentic memory. In other words, they believe what they were saying or deliberate fraud. They were distinctly lying in giving that testimony. It's a technique that's been used in Europe and specifically Germany in sexual abuse cases with children to try to determine whether what they were saying is it likely true from their point of view or is it obviously fabricated? And I thought, oh my goodness, here's a technique we could use to analyze the affidavit. And this was actually before the Ramey memo stuff. And I sent the documents to Stephen, he analyzed it and it came back as it wasn't truthful. And so I published that article too. And that's at that point I became public enemy number one to Roswell, New Mexico. So um, I, I'm known as this skeptic about Roswell, but not long after that study was published, and I, and I debate whether I should even tell you this, but there was something that personally happened to me that actually both concerned me and then also spurred me on to do more research. And I'm not gonna call it a men in black encounter, but it was very MIB-esque. And it was a time when I was living in student housing, getting my master's degree in psychology, and, and, and my wife at the time was the assistant director of student life. It was her job to help students with programming, uh, anything logistical or administrative related to, to housing there on campus. And so she was responsible for things like passing out keys, working with vendors to get things repaired, electricians, plumbers, that sort of thing. And I remembered after that was published, that original article on the Jim Ragsdale story, I got a very strange letter, strange to me, because it was out of nowhere. It was a very short letter. And it was from, and I quote, the Department of Defense Analytics. And it simply said, saw your article, I'm paraphrasing, basically saw your interesting article, would love to know any other research that you've been doing that hasn't been published along with its material. I didn't respond to that letter. I didn't respond. I don't, I don't know if I still have that letter. But soon after that, there was a very weird event that happened that I only learned about later from my wife. She said, and I told her about this letter later on because I didn't, I just put it aside. I, I, I didn't want to have anything to do with sharing information. I didn't want to get involved with the military if that's what this was. It was just a project, a study that I did because I was interested. But um, after I showed my wife this letter, she said, oh, that's, that's interesting. Uh, a couple days ago, I had a couple of workmen come to the office that said that they were here to do some repairs that were called in. She was very busy with things, so she didn't look at any credentials. They seemed to be dressed as workmen. Um, they seemed to have a clipboard, but they didn't show any paperwork. They just said they needed to be uh, to have the pass key to get into a section of housing, which just so happened to be where also she and I were living. And she gives the pass key, thinking nothing of it at the time. Um, but as she reflects on it, she doesn't remember getting back that pass key. She went to later look at work orders from students that may have either called in to different vendors like electricity, cable, water, whatever. Nothing was called in. There was no record of work orders. She never saw them again. And there was no pass key that was returned, even though later they found it in its place. And she thought that, wow, that was completely unlike any other interaction that she's had with utility workers. And nothing like that has ever happened since. 
And it just happened to coincide with around the time that I also got that letter that I never replied to. Well, you know that I'm probably the first person to have talked to Ragsdale about his experiences. Well, as, as a matter of fact, I believe you were an individual that wrote a letter to the editor after I published that research saying, hey, it just so happens there's other people looking at that testimony too, and maybe you didn't need to go to all that trouble. But, <laughs> but be as it may, it was another example of, again, we're not looking at opinion and speculation. There was a scientific technique that we can apply to the very limited objective data that we did have in this case. So it was a way to try to corroborate what we thought we knew. But yes, I, I, I learned later, thanks to you, that you indeed were down the same path. Well, what's interesting about all of this is I, after we first learned about the Ragsdale testimony, I mean, Don Schmidt and I learned about the Ragsdale testimony. I would start my presentations with, this starts out like every science fiction movie you've ever seen. The couple out in the, in, in the desert, desert Southwest, doing things they're not supposed to be doing and the thing crashes right in front of right. them. Uh, think of the blob with Stephen, Steve, Stephen McQueen. Steve McQueen, he was called Steve McQueen. <laughs> right. Um, but later on, I got, a, I got a call. We were in Roswell for the, one of the festivals and got a call from Jim Rags, one of Jim Ragsdale's children saying that uh, the helmets on the 15 bodies were made of solid gold. And I can think of no metal more useless for a helmet than gold. It's heavy and it's soft and would probably break your neck. But they had buried the helmets out there. And for $5,000, he'd tell me where the helmets were. I'm thinking, why don't you go out there and dig one up yourself? And then you have the gold, you know? I mean, am I idiotic? But I think the Gregsdale testimony has been pretty well discredited. Uh, yes. Basing on yes, the, changing of, the changing of the story and all of that sort of thing. And, and it's too bad because it was a nice way to start the presentations. It's a great story, but that's, that's all it turned out to be. But that wasn't because researchers were going back and forth based on speculation and opinion. It was because of due diligence, investigation, and the extent possible objective analysis. And you would hope that that kind of mentality wouldn't be controversial, especially as applied to the Ramey memo, but that would be embraced. It would be celebrated. And it should be applied to all of the aspects of the Roswell incident, as well as ufology. Did you ever look at the MJ-12 documents at all? I know about them. I've looked at them myself. Well, not the entire thing, but, but, but scans of a lot of the material. But I never took it upon myself to try to pursue any kind of research with it. Well, there's a number of fatal flaws that I think we've identified. Not only does the, the code word magic or majestic no longer work because there was another, we found a legitimate document named with the code word of majestic on it that had to do with logistics and nothing to do with alien spacecraft. Ah. But there would be no point, there, there's no point in this whole thing where you would have the same code word being used for two separate projects. Because if you did that, then someone who's cleared for majestic might inadvertently get the stuff that he's not cleared for and vice versa. So there's a, they, they control the use of code words and we found the legitimate code word. Uh, I just wondered if you'd ever done anything with MJ-12, but apparently not. No, it's, it's fascinating. And it's one of those things that, you know, if it is a hoax or if it is disinformation from another source for whatever reason, still a hoax, there is a tremendous amount of effort that went into that. And that only shows you the extent to which researchers need to be diligent. They need to check their belief systems, their ideologies at the door. And they need to then go also the extra mile to put the same amount of effort and analysis 
as some people have put into hoaxing. What is interesting about all of this is that um, I was reading a document, reading a document, reading a book, reading a paper the other day, and uh, it explained that 50% of all the documents relating to the Texas War for Independence were fabricated because there was a big market for those kinds of documents. And again, you've got, I think it's called the De La Pena Diary, which is a something that took a lot of work and effort to do. But I'm, I am convinced that, that it's something was created in the 1950s and had nothing to do, well, it had to do with the, with the Battle of the Alamo, but it, it uh, was created in the 50s by someone trying to uh, change the dynamics of the battle somewhat. Oh, it's fascinating. But and of you, course, you also have cases like, you know, the Hitler's diary, Jack the Ripper's diary. Um, it, it's certainly not just in ufology that you see this trend for hoaxing and trying to make money off things and whatnot. Even in the world of antiquities, um, collectors and dealers, you'll always see them in the news about, oh, this stolen artifact is now going back over here. And oh, by the way, this is now fake. Um, so, right. It, it's hard to know what to trust. All the more reason why investigators need to check their biases and their belief systems at the door and to try to really get at the truth of the matter. And that means objective analysis to the extent that you can. There was a movie that came out a while ago uh, starring Melissa McCarthy, and I really never cared for her as an actress. So if she was in something, I avoided it. But I got <laughs> caught up in this. And the, and the reason I bring it up now is she had been, she was portraying someone, and I forget the name of the woman, who was a legitimate real life person who had had some success as a writer, but her success had evaporated. And she sold a document that related to somebody that she knew. And it keyed her, well, I can make this stuff up. And she was selling an awful lot of documents like that. And, yes. and that was that became her livelihood, was creating these documents among the um, artistic community, the writing community, letters and things like that. And you'd have people writing books and they would quote those letters as some sort of evidence that, you know, person A did this to person B and that sort of thing. And it turned out to be a complete and total hoax. And I think that in the world, we tend to think if it's uh, something held in a library collection is probably accurate and true. And it turns out that may not be the case. No. And I have seen that movie, by the way. I, I happen to like it. Um, I'm not going to say I'm a Melissa McCarthy fan, but but that story I thought was compelling, and uh, and I imagine it might even be based on something real, because uh, we know that stuff happens, right? But um, it does. It, it, it again, I'm going to be a broken record. It should make every researcher nervous coming across evidence, and even if that evidence confirms what you think you know, what you want that evidence to say, that is the time where you need to ramp up your inner skeptic and try to debunk it, right? You need to play a healthy devil's advocate to yourself, really cross-examine that evidence. And that usually means you not doing it. When I mean you, I don't mean you, Kevin, but that investigator doing it. That's where you need to have independent eyes on evidence um, to one, see if it's valid, and then what does it mean? And it's too bad with the Ramey memo and, and the whole debacle that exploded because of that, that first article, that those kinds of approaches, that sort of mentality would be seen as one, controversial, and two, threatening. Um, it's not what the scientific method is supposed to be about. 
Well, we're going to have to take another break here, but I want to just reinforce the one idea of all the documents we've dealt with here. The Ramey memo is the one that we have the perfect provenance for because the guy's holding it in his hand and we have the data was transmitted. Uh, we're talking about the Ramey memo. We're talking about UFOs. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Journal for Scientific Exploration in just a moment. I'll have more information up at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. We will be back right after this, so please stick around. I am back. I am joined by Jim Horan. We've been talking about the Journal for Scientific Exploration in a roundabout way, focusing on the Ramey memo because he and I had done a, an experiment many, many years ago now uh, about the Ramey memo to try to gather some scientific data about it and, and uh, the interpretations of it. And, and as I you know, said repeatedly, I think it's important because I, it just cracks me up that the providence is so solid on it. The guy's holding the thing it in is. his hand. Um, but the Journal for Scientific Exploration, where they published this, this article, which um, <laughs> led to some nasty letters from, from ex-friends and that sort of mm -hmm, thing. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned it not only deals with UFOs, it deals with other paranormal activities and unusual phenomenon. Uh, what sort of things? Well, I'll, call it, I'll call it anomalous phenomenon. Anomalous. Uh, whether it's paranormal or not, who knows? But things like parapsychology, right? Do, do people have an ability to influence other people's minds or the environment? Cryptozoology, hidden animals, ufology, of course. But we also get into aspects of, of history, folklore, belief systems, um, new types of energies, and whether Einstein was right about things related to the cosmos. So it has to do with what we call edge science. Um, where, where people have observed either through just regular observation or whether through scientific measurement, aberrations, outliers, anomalies that otherwise wouldn't predict, that, that, that shouldn't be predicted to be there if our current understanding of science was correct. So to make sense of these anomalies, um, we offer a platform for good rigorous research, the kind of research that most mainstream journals wouldn't touch because it's too controversial. But we love controversy. Well, one of the things that's always come up in the uh, UFO field is the data are all anecdotal. And my question has become, when does an anecdotal observation become a scientific observation? Is there a line to be crossed there? What, what is the criterion for determining something as sci a scientific observation as opposed to an anecdotal observation? Well, I would say, you know, eyewitness testimony is a, is a qualitative piece of evidence, and you can do quantitative analysis on what people report, either when they report it, the kinds of details they report, the characteristics of the people making these claims. There's a lot you can analyze in a scientific way, and by scientific, I mean you're testing a hypothesis. You're trying to either affirm or disprove a particular perspective, a particular argument. So if it can be falsified, it's scientific. Um, and so sometimes you're also doing exploratory studies, which is you're just trying to find if there's any patterns to data, not trying to interpret those patterns, not trying to make sense of it, not trying to tie it to anything um, wider in the scientific world. You're just trying to see, is there, is there a recurring pattern that makes me go, hmm. So there's a lot you can do with eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony also should be uh, part of what guides or directs new research. If people, for example, you keep seeing reports of people that say, hey, there's unidentified flying objects over this part of the country. 
Well, we can bring instruments, we can bring scientific equipment to then try to confirm what people have said. So eyewitness testimony has a lot to do with the scientific method. It's used all the, all the time in biomedical research. Um, it's used in polling and marketing data. So no, if, if people try to dismiss eyewitness testimony as just being completely not a form of evidence, that's misguided. Well, uh, something you said here has kind of triggered a thought. Uh, are you familiar with the Galileo Project and Avi Loeb? Oh, yes. What, what do you think of that? Well, as a matter of fact, um, he was part of a symposium where he, and it's on YouTube, part of the Society for Scientific Exploration. That's the association that sponsors our journal. And so you can be a member of the association and, and have access to symposiums and talks and conferences. And there is a, um, a, a YouTube presentation, sort of a TED talk of sorts on that very topic that people can look up for free. It's fascinating. And I think most scientists, especially ones that deal with astronomy, cosmology, physics, would say that just statistically speaking, when you look at the vastness of the universe, there's almost certainly intelligent life somewhere else, or there has been in history. And there probably are, according to the Drake equation, right, just within our own Milky Way galaxy, there could be thousands of intelligent civilizations. And so artifacts, technological artifacts, space junk, so to speak, um, could be flying around and you could detect it. So um, it's a fascinating um, proposition. It's certainly part of the SETI program that search for um, you know, extraterrestrial life. So um, I, think it, I think it's fascinating. And that is one topic that really is bordering on the mainstream. You will see all sorts of mainstream uh, astronomers and people in physics talk about that sort of thing. Well, we've launched our own uh, interstellar probe with the, was it the Viking? And it, I think it's finally left the solar system. It's left the solar, right, yes. And so it's now out in deep, deep space in interstellar deep, space. Deep space. Mm -hmm. So it could pass by somebody's <laughs> civilization 80,000 years in the future. And uh, that's kind of, I think, what his attitude is, that there may be those sorts of probes sent out and uh, we can detect those much better than, or expect those much more than a kind of a interstellar flight with a... Oh, absolutely. I think there's even called, there's a term called techno-signatures. Um, that's kind of popular right now. So whether it is actual probes that are intentionally trying to see about life from other civilizations, or as I call it, space junk, like, you know, we have satellites that become defunct and it becomes basically garbage in space, and sometimes they'll fly off out of orbit. Well, maybe something like that also. It's not intentional, but it's a haphazard accident of someone else's space junk that comes into our atmosphere, or at least our neighborhood. And we can detect that as well. So whatever form techno signatures take, I think it's a fascinating and a very clever way of expanding the SETI program. I did a science fiction novel well, quite a few years ago called The Rat Trap. And the idea was that a technological civilization was sending out these probes. And the idea was if you could get to it in space, you know, it entered the solar system, you could get to it. Well, that dis displayed a level of... of um, technology and if you could get inside it that and and access the equipment in there that ex, uh, showed another level of intelligence and would radio the information back but it was a probe that was not really inhabited and then of course our people got caught inside now how do they get out of it 
you know, that they're inside. But it was just that kind of an idea that these probes were sent out looking for intelligence life, intelligent life without any specific de de designation or destination. But they were um, designed so that if somebody else got to it, it would alert the home world about that. Ah, that's cool. Kind of, kind that's of. That's cool. You also, of said course, Kevin. You know, we might be evidence of alien life, right? There's that idea too that human life was seeded through extraterrestrial organic matter, right? And so there is a study somewhat along those lines that is in preparation right now for our journal. That is the only study that I know of that's going to take a comprehensive look at humanoid sightings relative to UFOs and how that has changed over different periods of time and what that change, that evolution might mean. Um, so there's all sorts of fascinating hypotheses related to ufology, but uh, I guess the point is that humans, we think of extraterrestrials as being far off in distance and have nothing to do with us or our shared history when who knows, maybe there is, maybe there is something to this ancient civilization and ancient technology stuff that we either intermingled or maybe we came from um, another galaxy. Or another solar system. I, I just, I always thought that inner intergalactic flight would be impossible because the nearest galaxy is 2 million light years away. So that's quite a distance. It is if you're going the standard way, but who knows if there, if we can ever detect and use wormholes where you can actually take a, a detour through space-time fabric, who knows what, what might be possible. But um, it's fascinating to, to think about. I'm glad there are people that are pursuing this in an academic way. If, if somebody wants to learn more about the Journal for Scientific Exploration or, or can you subscribe to it? How do we get in touch? How do we learn about it? You can it? subscribe for a print version, but the advantage is it's an open access journal, which means it's free and online to any readers without any sort of a paywall. And people can go to scientificexploration.org and they can access all the past issues. So even if you're not a member of the Society for Scientific Exploration, or if you're not a subscriber to the print version of the journal, you anyone can get access to this cutting edge research. So if somebody wanted to look up our experiment that we did many, many years ago. <laughs> it's there, it's there, as is the Jim Ragsdale stuff, as well as other ufology topics. But um, we're, we're, we're yet to hear the end of Roswell. I think this is one of those cases that is never going away. And um, who knows what there might be in, in a library archive or what new photograph might be um, discovered. Uh, or new eyewitnesses that can lead us to new clues and trails of evidence. But uh, I don't think Roswell is going to be buried anytime soon. I would say that the explanation, and we, we kind of touched on you know, special weather balloon, the Project Mogul balloons, and it was a highly classified project and all of that. Of course, the purpose was highly classified, but what they were doing in New Mexico was not. It was standard issue balloons and uh, Raywin radar targets, things you could buy in the store if you wanted to. And there was nothing there that would fool anybody. And one of the things that I have discovered in going back through some of the um, information was Brazel, when he went to the sheriff's office the first day, took samples in with him. And if it was a weather balloon, it seems that Jesse Marcel and uh, Sheridan Cavett would have recognized that for what it was. And they would have never gone out to the ranch and this whole thing would have gone a different direction. So what he brought in was of significant strangeness that they felt they needed to go out there. And, so exactly. I mean, again, it's my personal opinion after weighing all the pros and cons and the different lines of evidence, including the eyewitness testimony, 
thanks in, in, in large part to you, Kevin, your diligent efforts to document these things before all these witnesses die. Um, I think it's pretty clear that the government lied. They keep lying. And uh, I don't know what the final explanation is, but as one person said, I think the extraterrestrial hypothesis is the least offensive explanation here. Well, the thing we have to take a look at is the government themselves, when they did their big fancy report in the mid-1990s, eliminated everything but Project Mogul. And if we eliminate Project Mogul, then you're left with nothing. How do you explain you're left it? With nothing, right. Is, is that sufficient to leap to the extraterrestrial and for many, many people it is. Others want something a little more concrete than, well, we've eliminated all the explanations. And I think if there was a logical explanation that they would have come up with, they would have come up with it in 1995 to explain something that happened in 1947. There's obviously nothing's gonna be classified anymore. Uh, the security is, is unnecessary now. And they would have trotted that out and said, here's what exactly. it was. Exactly. It's infuriating because somebody knows. This isn't one of those mysteries like Atlantis where, there's no one that actually knows, right? This is a, a mystery that there is an answer. The mystery is known to at least one person, if not many people. It's just not being shared with everybody else. So that's what's so frustrating is there is an answer to be grabbed, um, <laughs> but it's being withheld. And, and my suggestion is that had there been a terrestrial explanation, they would have trotted it out. And since they didn't, they have no terrestrial explanation. They would have gotten it right the first time. The, again, the way that it was handled makes no sense, regardless of what the explanation is. So um, clearly, this was not just a weather balloon or a special weather balloon. Something remarkable happened. Um, and maybe it involves something that has to do with stealth technology, maybe from the Russians or whatever. Who knows? But the fact is, we, we do not have the full explanation. And it certainly was no weather balloon. It just wasn't. Well, Jim, I gotta, I gotta let you go here. Normally, I cut people off long before this, so I can go. <laughs> my, my Sorry, studio, but the conversation has been so interesting. I didn't want to do that. Uh, once again, it's uh, the website is www.scientificexploration.org, and you can access all the journals, the JCS -E journals. Uh, they make for fascinating reading. There's book reviews in there, so if you uh, a book on UFOs or something, you you can see a. Uh, interesting reviews there. Jerry Clark did a wonderful one on the Aztec crash. Uh, book yes. I just love. Jim, thank you so much. My pleasure, Kevin. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, this was uh, me and Jim Haran, Haran talking about the uh, Roswell memo, Ramey memo and all of that. Next week with Locke, I will be joined by Klaus Sven, who is a Swedish UFO researcher. We'll chat with him about UFOs and his book. And I will be back here in about 167 hours with more conversation about UFOs and that sort of thing. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you later.